Welcome, listeners. This is Lauren Hodge joining you in studio with Jason Bedrick joining you in phone for another EdChoice Chat, a monthly debrief where we are going to look at what is going on in states around the nation regarding school choice. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here today, and I'm very excited to have Jason with us, joining us from Arizona. How you doing, Jason? Great, Lauren. How are you? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. And we were just talking about before we actually uh, jumped onto this podcast, it's a little bit of a slow time here for us on the state team as we aren't really in session. So I think, you know, the big news for us as we move forward is what's going on in Arizona, and we definitely want to talk about that and a little bit about what EdChoice has uh, recently attended, which was the uh, recent SPN or State Policy Network annual meeting. Um, so with that, kind of let's let's turn to Arizona. That's uh, that's where you're at right now, isn't it? It is. I've lived here in Arizona for about six years. Okay. So um, talk to me a little bit. I hear there's a, a proposition that's on the that's on the ballot. That's right. The the big education news here, which in some sense is actually big education news nationally, uh, is Prop 305. Proposition 305 is a referral, which means this. Arizona has an interesting legal system whereby if the legislature passes a bill and the governor signs it into law, it does not actually become law right away. There is a certain waiting period and citizens have the opportunity to file petitions. And if they get enough signatures, then they can refer the law to the ballot. And so that's what happened here. In 2017, the legislature passed an expansion of the state's empowerment scholarship accounts law, ESAs, uh, known in, in most places as education savings accounts, that expanded the eligibility for the students participating in the ESA program. Uh, Originally, this ESA was enacted in 2011, and the only eligible students were students with special needs. Uh, Since then, the program has expanded uh, several times. And so students who are assigned to a district school that receives a D or F on the state uh, accountability system are eligible. Uh, Students are also eligible if they're living on a Native American reservation, if they were adopted through the state foster care system, if they were children of active duty members of the military or military or police killed in the line of duty and and so on. And what they can do with these accounts, they get 90 percent of the state funding per pupil funding put into their account uh, for the typical non-special needs child. That's about fifty six hundred dollars. And those families can use it for a variety of purposes. That includes private school tuition, but also tutoring textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, and they can roll over unused funds from year to year. What the legislature did last year is expand the eligibility to all students who are either switching out of a public district or charter school or who are entering kindergarten for the first time. So this was a dramatic expansion of the program. They also, there there was a cap on the program that was going up every year. That cap was set to expire this year, but they extended the cap for several years and made the cap permanent in 2022 at 30,000 students. There's currently about 5,000 students participating. So this was a a good-sized growth in both the eligibility pool and the number of students that could be served. What happened next, though, was that a group called Save Our Schools, SOS Arizona, 
got enough signatures to put it on the ballot. And so the program was supposed to go into effect last fall, or the expansion rather was supposed to go into effect last fall. And instead it was put on hold pending the outcome of Prop 305. Okay. So, so Jason, that's a, that's really, really helpful. So there's a lot of information there and I want to unpack it all so that the, the listeners really get a, a good deep dive into this. So you mentioned that there had to be signatures in order to put this uh, onto the ballot. And do you know how many signatures that required? Uh, yeah, it required around 75,000 signatures and they were able to turn in just over 111,000 signatures. Uh, a bunch of them uh, ended up being not counted because people were ineligible to vote uh, or you know, in a number of cases, there were actually some, some incidents of fraud. You know, there was uh, several pages in one case that were turned in that all were written in the exact same handwriting and it has to be actually filled out by the voter. Uh, so there were a lot of, let's say, shady things uh, with regard to the signature gathering process. Uh, but in the end, the Secretary of State did certify that they had met the requirement. There were some lawsuits over that. Uh, ultimately, the, the state Supreme Court allowed it to go through. And so it will be on the ballot next month. And so, uh, Jason, just so we're being clear, when you say they turned in signatures, is this the Save Our Schools Yes, the group okay. Save Our Schools turned the signatures, correct. Okay, so so if I'm understanding kind of the, the etymology of, of this program, it started out with a, a simple choice program in Arizona. Is that correct? Yes, the ESA program that was enacted in 2011. All right, and then over time, this, this program was expanded? Yes. Okay, and so the this most recent expansion, which legislative session did you say that uh, had the switchers that was going to lead to the, the greatest expansion? Right. So this was the 2017 legislative session, and it uh, would have made Arizona the have the, the largest, the most expansive ESA program in the country, with the possible exception of Nevada. But you know we've we've covered that on this program before. Nevada has the most expansive ESA on the books. It just has zero dollars attached to it, so nobody can actually benefit from it. And that's a whole long story for another day. But this would actually have gone into effect. And if voters do vote yes for 305 on the ballot next month, or really uh, right now, because uh, Arizona has early voting, a lot of people in the state, actually a majority of the state votes early. So they're already filling out ballots and sending them in. If 305 were to pass, then the expansion will go forward. If 305 does not pass, the expansion will be dead, but the program that already exists will remain in effect, except that it will have no cap on the number of participants. And that actually is an issue that that has divided some in the in the school choice community over whether to support it or not. Uh, I know there were other groups as, as well that recommended remaining neutral because there's a, another quirk of Arizona election law, and that's called the Voter Protection Act. So anything that the voters enact on the ballot becomes like a referendum or a citizen's initiative becomes voter protected which means that the legislature cannot make any changes to the law unless they have a three-fourths majority of the legislature voting in favor. 
Now, they're, they're actually, it's, it's quite complicated, and there are some lawyers who disagree over whether this actually is going to be voter protected or not. Most think that it will be, at least of, the, of the, the experts that I've spoken to, but even they concede that it's really still an open question because the state Supreme Court has not ruled on this issue. So we won't really know until it goes to the state Supreme Court. If, if it were enacted and there were some changes made, it would have to go to the state Supreme Court to see if it required a three-fourths majority or not. But the sticking point there is that it would make that 30,000 cap potentially permanent. I mean, everybody knows how difficult it is to get even a majority, never mind a supermajority of two-thirds, let alone three-fourths. So it, for practical purposes, it would require, you know, it, it would be permanent unless there were another citizen initiative to overturn it with a simple majority of all voters in the state. So that's that's been an open question. And, and you know, with legislation generally, you 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 enact a program. Uh, it seems to be working fine, but there are a few areas that you know there were some unforeseen, unintended consequences of the way the law was drafted, or new issues arose. And so, you know, legislatures periodically go back and make tiny tweaks to the program. Uh, this would make it very difficult to go back and, and make those sorts of tweaks. Uh, those on the other side of the issue say, uh, you know, it's worth doing. It's worth voting yes, because if this were to go down, then supporters of school choice are not going to have the political capital to expand the existing program. It's going to be frozen in place legislatively anyway. And if we were to win on 305, they would have the political capital, perhaps, to uh, create a, a parallel program that would be able to expand over time, or, or perhaps even go back to the voters. If they voted for it once, perhaps the voters would be willing in a few years from now to revisit the question and expand it to, to keep up with growing demand for the program. So, you know, there, there are school choice advocates on both sides of the question, and certainly many citizens on both sides of the question. And uh, we will we will see in early November uh, how Arizona voters decide. So, uh, Jason, just a question as to the the effect of this vote um, when it is decided, when the the votes are cast and and we have the result, um, if the program is expanded or if the program is not expanded, when is the effective date onto that program? How does that work? So that is also an interesting question, when the effective date is, because in the law, the effective date was going to be about a year ago. So it seems that the law would go into effect right away, although, practically speaking, given that it would take some time for the Department of Ed to adjust, likely the, the first people receiving ESAs under this, this law would be in the next quarter. So that would be beginning in January. Okay. Um, so do we have any polling data? Do we know what any of this looks like? So it's interesting. A few months ago, there was a poll that showed almost a three-way split between yes, no, and not sure. And then that was, that was toward the beginning of the summer. And then toward the middle of the summer, there was another poll that showed about 40% opposed and about 30% in favor and the rest undecided. 
But more recently, uh, the Arizona Republic conducted a poll with Suffolk University, and they found the reverse. Uh, They found that about 41% were in favor of Prop 305, about 32% were opposed. So there's between an eight and nine point spread in favor. And then the remainder, you know, fewer than a third, about 27%, I believe, uh, were undecided. So depending on how those undecideds vote, this could go either way. Undecideds in the state, no matter what the ballot prop is, uh, tend to vote no, because no is the safer bet. If you don't really know what this thing does, no preserves the status quo ballot initiatives, you know, you've got this huge block of text. These are voters who, you know, by and large, aren't spending their days reading legislative legalese. And so sometimes it can be a a bit unclear. But uh, right now, things are looking pretty good for Prop 305. But again, it still could go either way. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we'll we'll all have our eyes casted towards uh, Arizona as the last couple of weeks approach. And we'll have to see what what shakes out in that program, and hopefully uh, have an opportunity to catch back up with you in the coming weeks, and you know, debrief what what this does mean for Arizona and and the school choice movement moving forward. Yeah, certainly, uh, I'm here. We've got uh, there are signs all over the place. Uh, yes on 305, <laughs> no on 305. Certainly interesting, uh, right? And uh, actually, the the latest spending figures are out as well. So one oh, interesting. interesting fact is that the no side. Is, is outspending the yes side more than 10 to 1. So that's been quite interesting. So if, if yes were to win, despite uh, you know, the national groups not getting involved and despite being outspent 10 to 1, I think that would send a very clear message that in a state like Arizona, where you've got a robust school choice environment, that school choice programs are, are popular uh, once people ha- are exposed to them. And one thing that's worth noting is the context. The school choice movement has never won on the ballot. Every Mm. single ballot initiative so far has gone down. It's been very successful in state legislatures, but it's it's very easy to scaremonger when something is on the ballot and say, you know, this is going to hurt public schools. If you're in a legislature, you can you can show them all the research that actually shows that public schools benefit. There is increased choice and competition. Public schools improve their performance. This is this has been the consistent finding of more than two dozen studies. And so when you're in a state legislature, advocates have the opportunity to sit down with legislators to show them the research literature and, and show them why expanding educational choice not only benefits those who use the program, but actually improves the education system writ large. It's a lot harder to do that when you're being outspent 10 to 1 and the other side is saying this is going to take money out of your school. So if those arguments, you know, the scaremongering tactics don't work here, I think that's going to send a huge message nationwide that once you have a school choice, you know, a school choice program might be very controversial at first, but once you have it in place and people have uh, the opportunity to have that that freedom and flexibility to customize their child's education and choose the right learning environment that uh, best fits their child's individual needs, that's going to send a huge message. That's a good point, Jason. So it's it's going to be one that we definitely need to keep our eyes on. And I know we at Ed Choice and you especially living in Arizona, we're going to have our eyes our eyes kept on that um, and you know be watching with with some great anticipation. 
Certainly. Now, I, I, we were just last week at the State Policy Network event in uh, Salt Lake City. This was your first time going to an SPN convention. So uh, what did you think about it? It was. I, you know, I thought it was a, a great opportunity to, to meet some new groups. Um, so for those listeners who are maybe tuning in for the first time, um, I am our, one of our newer hires here at EdChoice onto the state team. Um, I come into this whole movement not with a, a large policy background or anything like that. I was previously a litigator. And so um, SPN was a great opportunity for me to meet um, a wide variety of people nationwide who are working on just some really cool issues, everything from um, certainly school choice, but also including environmental issues and um, pension issues and funding issues and uh, just these these really kind of um, unique think tanks across across the nation. And to hear them speak and have the opportunity to to talk to them kind of on these one on one um, meetings, it was a it was a great opportunity. I really enjoyed myself, and I thought the um, I thought the the think tanks that were there, the the, the participants, the uh, people around us were were a lot of fun, and I had a good time just meeting what I feel like is an endless cast of new people in this job. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's certainly interesting. So just some uh, context for our listeners: the State Policy Network is it's a loose network of think tanks of a, a sort of free market orientation nationwide. So think of organizations like the Goldwater Institute in Arizona or the James Madison Institute in Florida or you know the Heartland Institute in Illinois. These are, are state policy think tanks. Some of them actually like, like Goldwater and Heartland are, are national in their reach, but these are think tanks that are looking at state level policy and offering suggestions for how to improve those policies in a manner that will lead to greater freedom and prosperity. So the, these, these think tanks cover you know, everything from you know, taxation issues, healthcare, transportation, you name it. So that, you know, the, these uh, seminars that they hold will have policy experts from just a, a, an incredibly wide diversity of, of different subjects. And even within those subjects, right, there's, you know, hundreds of different areas, thousands that, that, that they can explore. So education, obviously, is a huge issue every year at SPN. Education usually is the, the biggest uh, single budget item in a state budget. Sometimes, actually, in some states, it's number two now next to healthcare. But for most states, it's usually number one. Some state budgets, it's even like, you know, half the budget. So, you know, education, obviously, for that reason, is a very prominent. And among these free market think tanks, uh, you know, I would say they're universally in favor of school choice. I don't know that I've met uh, anybody who belongs to an SPN think tank that isn't in favor of school choice. The only question is, you know, what flavor of school choice you prefer. You know, there's disagreements over, uh, you know, what sort of regulations are or are not appropriate, that sort of thing. So you, you often have a very few fruitful discussions about that. And this year there were uh, Ed Choice. We had uh, our own pre-conference seminar that where we brought in a bunch of different speakers to talk about a wide variety of issues, the fiscal effects. Pluralism. Research literature, pl yeah, pluralism. So looking at it from a wide variety of, uh, of different viewpoints. Uh, and there were a number of other panels that uh, discussed school choice as well. So it, it was good to see that once again, this is an issue that 
is exciting the movements and a lot of them are are looking forward to the next year to adding new school choice policies or expanding existing ones in their states and I think, you know, Jason, just to go off of that point a little bit, as, as someone who's, who's new to this and new to these meetings in general, um, the ability to get together with counterparts in other states and, and have a, a genuine opportunity to sit down, spend meaningful time with one another and exchange ideas, even though they may not work in every single state that we're talking about, or even though there might be intricacies in states that you're, you know, you're working in. Um, that exchange of ideas is is so beneficial and so meaningful. And I, I personally, you know, we're busy, right? Everybody's working. Everybody's running around. Everybody has, you know, 15 different places to be. I think sometimes when I look at my calendar at, at one point in time, <laughs> but um, just to be able to carve out that specific period of time for a couple of days, um, I always think it's just, just such a beneficial thing. And if, rec- if my memory serves correctly, you've previously worked for um, a think tank that was part of SPN, correct? That's right. Back in 2012, I was a part of the uh, Josiah Bartlett Center in New Hampshire, which is not named for the fake president on the West Wing, but <laughs> named for his uh, real ancestor, Josiah Bartlett, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Actually, if you look on the row all the way on the right. Uh, the very top name is Josiah Bartlett. He was president of New Hampshire. They, they, they later changed the title from president to governor because if uh, President Washington was going to come visit, it would sort of be awkward for the president of the United States to be meeting with the president of New Hampshire. They, so they changed it to governor. But yeah, he's a, a big figure in New Hampshire history. And I work for the think tank that bears his name. Do you, so as, as somebody who's attended both as, as part of a think tank and then also as the director of, of Ed Policy here with Ed Choice, is your experience any different when you attend these types of events or is it largely a similar experience? You know, I see you and Michael at all of these events and really so much of our Ed Choice, you know, counterparts. You guys know everybody in the room. I feel like, you know, everybody's old friends. And like I said, I'm still meeting the never ending cast of characters. <laughs> in this movement. Um, so, so what is that experience like compared to what you've had previously? Well, you know, I mean, it, my role has sort of changed. So back in 2012, when, when I would attend something like SPN, I was going to learn about what states, other states were doing so that I could import it to New Hampshire, you know, and, and at the time we were working on a, a tax credit scholarship bill, which we did ultimately get passed, which was very gratifying. Now I'm in a different role. So as many years later, I've spent a lot more time not only researching school choice programs, but actually traveling all across the country, visiting with policymakers and, you know, probably two dozen different states and, you know, seeing how these programs are working in the different states. So my role has switched more to a, a provider of information. So uh, state policy think tanks are, are coming to EdChoice to learn about what's going on nationally. And what I mean when I say nationally, I don't mean at the federal level, but I mean in these other states, uh, because EdChoice, and I found this back when EdChoice was the Freedom Foundation and I was in, you know, in New Hampshire, EdChoice is the go-to place if you want to learn about how school choice programs are operating, 
what you could do to improve the school choice program that's in your state, that sort of thing. So, but I also still learn a great deal from our state policy partners about the, the context of what's going on in their state. And the things that we learn from our state partners, we're able to pass on to our other state partners, you know, things that they should look out for, uh, you know, why they should phrase a certain provision this way as opposed to that way. It's as with all uh, public policy, it's constantly a learning process. And so SPN and EdChoice are, are both great facilitators for this knowledge sharing and learning. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And it's been a, a great way to spend what is perhaps not a, the busiest legislative session, right? Uh, with, with nothing in session at the moment, it's a, certainly a, a wonderful, meaningful way to spend some time. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So with that, I think that's, that's going to wrap up our podcast. Any last thoughts, Jason? I think we've covered it all for now. I very much look forward to our next podcast, which will be after the elections, and we'll have an opportunity to look at what happened on Prop 5 in Arizona and also which state legislatures uh, might be primed for new or improved school choice programs next year. Well, I look forward to continuing our discussion, and thank you listeners for tuning in as we look back at September and look towards October. Uh, tune in next month for uh, for another EdChoice chat. Please be, feel free to contact us and reach out to us. We're always looking for new ideas. Uh, you can reach us at media at edchoice.org. Make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. Uh, you can also follow us on social media at EdChoice. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. 